0: You're listening to Comedy Central. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But a Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is our podcast for The Late Show with my producer, Becca. Uh, Becca, how long have you been producing this podcast?
1: I've been producing this podcast for two years now.
0: And your favorite thing about it?
1: The extended moments, for sure.
0: Right, because sometimes I'll interview like a big star for 25 minutes. And we can only put like 14 minutes on air. Where can people get that?
1: On The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And who produces that?
1: Uh, I, I help out. It's a team effort.
0: July 18, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. My guest tonight, my guest tonight, my guest tonight is an author, an author by the name of Annie Lowry. Joining us, everybody. She, she, she has a new book arguing that everybody should be paid a universal basic income. The book is called Give People Money. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Remember that volcano that was erupting in Hawaii? Well, it still is.
1: Tonight, the Coast Guard in Hawaii is warning of more potentially dangerous lava bomb explosions on and off the Big Island. It comes after molten rock came slamming down onto a tour boat, injuring nearly two dozen people on board.
0: And now, after destroying more than 700 homes, the volcano is creating a new island in the Pacific as rivers of molten lava pour into the ocean. You know, that volcano is terrifying but it's also the most considerate natural disaster I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, because it destroyed the island, but then it made a whole new island. <laughs> I've never seen that before. Like, imagine if an earthquake knocked down your house, but then erected a condo next door. <laughs> That's such a weird thing. In other news, last night was Major League Baseball's all-star game, and one of the pitchers, one of the pitchers, the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, Josh Hader, right, he had uh, some of these old racist and homophobic tweets go viral while he was on the mound pitching. This went viral while he was out there pitching. And everyone knew about it except him. (laughs) Like, you know the catcher must have tried to give him signals. He must have been like, your tweets, your tweets. (laughs) No, your tweets, you (laughs) Delete, delete your account." Uh, Moving on, thanks to government regulations, there's a whole new meaning to lactose intolerance. Soy milk may now need a new name. The uh, Food and Drug Administration is considering banning the word milk in descriptions of non-dairy products. The FDA plans to issue new standards on labeling products as milk as something that comes from a cow, not a plant. Finally! (laughs) Almond milk can no longer be called milk. (laughs) I mean, I get it, I guess, you know, but now they're going to have to come up with a new name. And personally, I'm not looking forward to drinking almond (laughs) but hey, I guess (laughs) rules are rules. Rules are rules. All right, let's move on to today's top story. (laughs) President Obama. (laughs) He's not coming back. After a year, after a year and a half of relative silence, the 44th president of the United States is back in the public eye. This week, he flew to Africa, where he opened (laughs) a community center in Kenya and then visited the village where his dad grew up, yeah? And finally picked up a copy of his real birth certificate. (laughs) And surprise, he's actually from Norway. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. And then it was on to South Africa for what Obama thought was a celebration of the 100th birthday of Nelson Mandela. But actually, actually, it turned into a roast of his dance moves. There's one area
1: where President Obama cannot match Madiba. Unfortunately, he cannot dance as well as Madiba can dance.
0: I feel like that's the same face he had on election night. It was just like... <laughs> you know, you know what's funny? It's funny how in America, people credited Obama as a great dancer, right? Because he was the first US president with rhythm, right? But in Africa, all the presidents can dance. So when Obama dances in Africa, people are like, hey, eh, Barack, your white side is showing, huh? <laughs> what's happening here? Because, look, Obama's not a great dancer. He's a good dancer, but he's not a great dancer. And I know you might be saying, who are you to judge Obama's dance moves, Trevor? Well, I'll tell you who I am. (laughs) I'm the runner-up of the 2012 season of Dancing with the Stars South Africa. That's right. That's right. But Obama in South Africa used the occasion to give a speech on the state of the world. And of course, whenever Obama talks about current events these days, there's an elephant in the room, which is fine, I mean, he's a South African citizen and he had every right to be there, but I actually meant the other elephant in the room, Donald Trump. While Obama never called Trump out by name, his subtweeting was sharp. We see the, the utter loss of shame among political leaders where they're caught in a lie and they just double down and they lie some more. It used to, look, let me say, politicians have always lied. But it used to be if you caught them lying, they'd be like, oh, man.
1: <laughs> now they just keep on lying.
0: Isn't it amazing that Trump is such a big liar that you don't even have to mention his name and everyone knows who you're talking about? <laughs> even in Africa, you're like, liar, and they're like, Trump, Trump, <laughs> Trump. But beyond, beyond his political commentary, Obama's main purpose in South Africa was to pay tribute to Nelson Mandela. Madiba's light shone so brightly, even from that narrow Robben Island cell, that in the late 70s, he could inspire a young college student on the other side of the world. Mandela said, Young people are capable, when aroused, of bringing down the towers of oppression and raising the banners of freedom. Now's a good time to be aroused. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is is probably the only thing that Trump and Obama agree on. Trump's like, you're so right, Barack, there's never a bad time to be aroused. Like, ah, uh, that's not what I meant. She's like, too late. Dan Junior's out already, baby. <laughs> now that clip touched a little on the man that Nelson Mandela was. But after the break, we'll talk about the man behind the legend. So don't go away. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about the Late Show Pod Show, which is our podcast for the Late Show with my producer Becca. Uh, Becca, how long have you been producing this podcast?
1: I've been producing this podcast for two years now.
0: And your favorite thing about it?
1: The extended moments, for sure.
0: Right, because sometimes I'll interview like a big star for twenty-five minutes, and we can only put like fourteen minutes on air. Where can people get that?
1: On the Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And who produces that?
1: Uh, I I help out. It's a team effort.
0: Welcome back to The Daily Show. Before the break, we were catching up with President Obama, who's in South Africa to celebrate Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday. And let's just acknowledge how dope you have to be for people to keep throwing you birthdays after you're dead. (laughs) Just think about how amazing you have to be. Like, most of you can't even get your roommate to come to your party, and you're alive. Yeah. It's like, dude, what do you mean you can't come over? We live in the same room! (laughs) So who was Nelson Mandela to get Obama to take a break from kite surfing and go all the way to Africa (laughs) to give his first big speech since he left the White House? Well, really, there are two Nelson Mandelas. The first is played by every black actor in Hollywood. My name is Nelson Mandela. I'm the first accused. I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. Those in power deny your freedom the only path to freedom is power I will walk to the quarry but I will no longer run it is not your place to tell me what is possible this is the time to build our nation ignorance brings chaos not knowledge now I know I know a lot of people complain that she takes roles she shouldn't, but I think she nailed it there. <laughs> she killed it, she was pretty good. Scarlet can yo. So uh, there's movie Mandela and there's real Mandela. And because today marks 100 years since his birth, I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the man because he spoke about me on my birthday. Now, that's, that's not true at all. <laughs> now, the first thing you need to know about Nelson Mandela is that his name was not Nelson.
1: When I went to school, the lady teacher, Miss Dingane, asked, "What is your name?" I told her my African name, Khulislas. She says, "No, I don't want that one. You must have a Christian name." So I say, "No, I don't have one." She says, "You are from today, you are going to be Nelson." That's how I ended the name Nelson,
0: not given by my parents. Wow. Can you imagine how Mandela's parents must have felt? (laughs) Their kid left the house as (laughs) Rolishasha and comes back as Nelson. (laughs) Like, his dad must have been so mad. He'd be like, they called you what? I'm calling your teacher right now. Hello? This is Gata Mandela. No, your name is Jeremy now. Ah, they got me too! Ah! Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now, the reason Nelson Mandela had to have a Christian name is basically because back in the early 20th century, white people ran South Africa. So you couldn't have a name that they couldn't pronounce, right? Even though they were only 20% of the population, they controlled the government, the land, the economy, everything. Yeah, it's kind of like how today, all those no-gluten people have control of all of our menus. (laughs) Yes. except in South Africa, the intolerance was real. So it was this oppression, It was this oppression that pushed Nelson Mandela to join a revolutionary movement called the African National Congress, He joined politics when he was just 26 years old, partly to fight racial inequality, and also because he had just been kicked off his parents' Obamacare. Now, at first, (laughs) at first, the ANC fought for racial equality peacefully, but the racist government only got more oppressive. In fact, in 1948, South Africa's government set up apartheid, which made legal racism the foundation of the entire country. Black people couldn't vote, they had to live in certain areas and they were banned from playing sports with white people. All right. And I'm, I'm not gonna lie, that last part, I completely understand, all right. I mean, if your system is based on white supremacy, you can't have black people dunking all over your shit. <laughs> it just doesn't go with the narrative. You're like, white people are superior. Oh, wait, I wasn't ready, I wasn't ready. In fact, the government became so oppressive that Mandela and the ANC decided to resort to violence. They bombed power stations, post offices, and I mean, they did it when people weren't in there, but still, they blew shit up. And there were many people, not just in South Africa, but around the world, who wanted him to respond to the brutality of the government with civility, to which Mandela replied, shit." There are many people who feel that it is useless and futile for us to continue talking peace and nonviolence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks on an unarmed and defenseless people. Now, I know for a lot of people seeing a young, radical Mandela, that's a bit of a shock. Yeah, it's like finding out one of the Care Bears mauled a hiker to death. (laughs) I mean, I'd expect that out of Tenderheart, but you, Funshine? (laughs) But you see, Nelson Mandela believed that violence was necessary to fight a violent government, and he paid a price for it. In 1962, when Mandela was 44 years old, the apartheid government arrested him and sentenced him to life in prison. And what he said in the docks is legendary. He said, I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society. It is an ideal which I hope to live and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. I mean, I'm prepared to die. But, but I don't want to die. I'm saying I'm prepared. <laughs> don't, don't make me die. I'm just saying like, prepared to die, but not die necessarily. Can we, let's edit that part out. Just leave that. So Mandela went on to spend almost 30 years in prison. Yeah. And the longer he stayed in prison, the more Mandela became a legend around the world. By the 1980s, you had concerts around the globe to free Nelson Mandela. And you gotta admit, you gotta admit, it's probably good that that teacher changed his name because it would have been a lot harder for white people around the world to protest his freedom when they couldn't pronounce his name, <laughs> if they were like, free, 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 you know, let's just go save the whales, guys. Let's just go save the whales. <laughs> now, Nelson Mandela's story up to that point was impressive, but it's what he did after he came out of prison that transformed him from a leader to a legend, right? Because when he became South Africa's first black president, he reconciled the country, and he insisted that white people be a part of it. Right, and you realize this is a black country and he's the first black president. He could have easily just said, I'll give you white people a 10-minute head start. <laughs> you guys put me in prison for 30 years. I don't even know what a workman is. <laughs> I just hope I get to meet Elvis. What? <laughs> Five-minute head start. <laughs> so, so, you see, this is just part of why people like uh, Barack Obama look up to Nelson Mandela. This was a man who grew up in a country, steeped in racism, spent decades in prison fighting it, and then dedicated his life to a world of racial progress. And, most impressively, when he was asked why he's not bitter, he had this to say. You end up coming out of prison, and there is no bitterness. How is there no bitterness? Well, I hated oppression. And
1: when I think about the past, the type of things they did, I feel angry, you have a limited time to stay on earth. You must try and use that period
0: for the purpose of transforming your country. That's why he's a legend. (laughs) Happy 100th birthday, Madhida. We'll be right back. My guest tonight is a contributing editor for The Atlantic and author of the new book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Please welcome Annie Lowry. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is a book that will get some people really orgasmic and some (laughs) Republicans nightmares (laughs) for years.
1: Hopefully. Give
0: people money. Yes. Not let them earn money, just give people money. On a basic level, what does universal basic income mean?
1: So the idea would be that a government, in this case our government, would give everybody the equivalent of a social security payment. So you would just get $500 or $1,000 a month maybe just for living and breathing and and being in the United States.
0: So you would just get paid to just be. Yes. That's it.
1: That's it. (laughs) It's a very, very simple revolutionary idea.
0: Right. Okay. So simple idea. Complex in execution. Yes. You know, because as soon as you say universal basic income, immediately people jump to communism, socialism. Right. You are going to give people money, then your first question is why would people bother working?
1: Right. So the idea is that it wouldn't be enough money. To stop people from working. So, if you had $500 a month from the government, it's very unlikely that you would quit working. We have actually a lot of studies that have shown that even with more money than $500 a month, people don't stop working. And the people who do stop working, there's not that many of them. Tend to be the parents of young children. Right. They tend to be young folks who are staying in school for longer, and then they tend to be older folks who perhaps retire, or take it easy a little bit earlier.
0: So you have groups of people who may be using universal basic income to improve their lives. You know, to raise children, to to earn an education. In the title, you say uh, how a universal basic income would end poverty, revolutionize work, and remake the world. Why revolutionizing work?
1: So the idea is that if there were a future in which a lot of jobs started to be replaced with AI and automation, how would a lot of people support themselves? It's a really pressing question. It's one that people are really worried about. And the idea is that the government would kind of have to step in to help people, keep people's heads uh, above water in that kind of circumstance. But there's also an argument for doing something like this now. So if you had $1,000 a month Uh, to fall back on, you might not take a job with poverty wages. You might ask an employer to actually improve working conditions. Right. So it could be really good for workers. And we've seen just a remarkable reduction in the power of the labor force uh, versus their employers. And so this would be kind of a solve for that.
0: When you speak about the labor force, I mean, you've gotten a lot of pushback on this book. You know, um, the Wall Street Journal, for instance, saying... Why give people money? Why not focus on giving people jobs? Isn't that more important than just giving them a handout?
1: Yeah, I mean, so people want to work, and it's not necessarily a bad idea. But imagine having the government run a giant jobs program that was designed to employ, like, 50% of the labor force. That would be a really hard and expensive thing to do. And the great thing about giving people money is you you give them choice, and you support the economy in that way. You don't have to come up with 30 million jobs.
0: Right. How do you pay for it? (laughs) Because <laughs> that's the big question you, you have here. I mean, like, if you, yeah. if you look at the numbers, I mean, if, uh, if, I, if I understand correctly, $1,000 per person per month yeah. would cost $3.9 trillion per year, right. which is about one-fifth of the GDP. So how do, you, how do you pay that? Even if you take away all of the Republicans' tax cuts, let's say you, over, you overturn that, right. that's still going to be 5% of paying for it. So where do you get the money from?
1: Well, the United States is a low... Low-tax country by OECD standards.
0: I heard it's the highest taxes in the world. It is
1: not. It is not even close to it. And the government does less redistribution than other similar economies do. It's part of the reason that we have the kind of wage stagnation and inequality that we've had. It's why we have more poverty than other countries that are equally rich as us. So I think that the idea is that you would probably get rid of some government programs. um, And then you would raise some money maybe through something like uh, raising the estate tax, Mm -hmm. financial transactions taxes, things like carbon tax taxes, maybe a VAT. But this idea that there isn't enough money for really big ideas, it might not be popular, it might not be easy to pass, but the money is out there. That's not the problem.
0: If you look at people who are already paying tax, there are many people in America who would say, I pay my fair share of taxes. There are already programs that help. As you said, social security, there are people who get grants from the government. Mm -hmm. Why should they now also get another uh, level of assistance in basic income? while I have to pay more tax. How would you respond to that?
1: So it probably wouldn't be everybody who would be paying more in tax, right? It would be very rich people and perhaps corporations that would be paying more in tax. Um, but the thing that this would do was it would really give more help to low-income families. Right. So the United States over time has actually given less money to people who are extremely poor. The United States has a rate of child poverty that is two, three, even four times as high as in similar com- uh, countries. Right. And so the idea here is that, you know, right now we have a safety net with gaping holes in it. We allow and we choose for people to be in poverty. Even now with the good economy that we have, one in seven Americans is in poverty, um, more than 20% of children. And so the safety net that we have isn't working in a lot of cases. And so I think that you've seen a lot of, you know, political strife and concerns about inequality in this country and this, like, feeling that there's a need for bigger solutions if the problem is going to be so big.
0: It's a, it's a powerful issue that, uh, I mean, everyone is debating. You have many tech leaders joining in and saying, I think we need to look at this. President Obama in South Africa in his speech actually just said the same thing. He said, maybe we should be looking at um, universal basic income. There is, I I guess, one question that would always loom over, and that is, uh, historically in America, you'd be naive to propose any idea involving giving people money if we don't acknowledge that race will always come into it. There'll be a factor and that is race. Yes. Do you think it is a program that could be passed in America, thinking of how like welfare has been attacked, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Yeah, it's a real challenge. So the reason that we don't have the kind of safety net that you see in sort of similar countries, whether Canada or Europe, um, is largely because of race and racism, right? We as a country have just really hated the idea of giving money to people, and then you know we judge them for how they use it, right? right? You see this embedded in the programs that we already have. You know, if you have food stamps or SNAP benefits, we say you can buy this kind of food but not that kind of food, right? Um, and we have a lot of requirements for programs that very low po- that very low income people use, and so this would be a counterbalance to that. But I do think it's right that that you know you would have a large group of people in. The the united states and we have a a culture that really um valorizes work that would object to this and say you know like i'm just not okay with that i do think that it's a very big challenge to it but it's not a reason not to do it
0: it's a challenge uh it's exciting it's fascinating and uh, it's one of the reasons i enjoy the book thank you so much for being on the show thank you really appreciate it (laughs) give people money is available now annie lowry everybody